What we're going to do this morning is we are going to continue on um, in the second part of what we started last week uh, on Easter Sunday, talking about the resurrection um, and the fact that it matters. Uh, We'll do it a little bit differently this week by uh, doing it in Philippians chapter 3 in honor of our partnering to Remember Sunday and the work that has gone on in so many of your lives and memorizing the book of Philippians. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Philippians chapter 3. And we'll start with the first of Paul's two finalies. Always watch a preacher when he's preaching and he says, finally. There's probably still something else to come. Paul had to say it twice to this church. I say it to you guys like three or four times a week probably. Um, Finally, Paul says, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, again, for those of you that are new with us, I like to read and stop and talk and read and stop and talk. So don't get panicked. We're going to make it all the way through by God's grace. But... This little introduction to Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It gets glossed over so quickly in any teaching and and, and preaching or writing about Philippians chapter 3. This chapter contains some of the deepest and richest, uh, most famous, most memorized, most taught passages in all of Paul's letters. And we'll get to them in just a minute. And the first verse gets glossed over so quickly. Here's the problem. This first verse, this command to rejoice, is the context for everything else he's about to say. What Paul's about to say that we've gotten so familiar with, that we've, we've made ourselves so aware of, and we've broken down into so many bits and pieces, is in the context of Paul encouraging them in their joy. What Paul is after is the deep and lasting joy in their heart that comes from not just knowing in their minds, but knowing and experience and taste and passion in their hearts the person and work of Jesus. And so what Paul is going to say is this, I'm I'm going to encourage you, I want to strengthen you, I want to fight for you and with you for your joy. The theme of everything he's going to say is their joy. And if there's anything that I think we could be encouraged in and strengthened in in this day and age, it's joy. I mean, just this week in in reading some newspapers, uh, I think it was the Washington Times on Thursday, was reporting that the national morale is at its lowest point in the last three years. The, the sense that the people have, and whoever they ask, I don't know how the pollsters do all that they do. Uh, they get paid by somebody to find out answers. I know that much. But whoever they ask these questions to, uh, it came back that for the first time in the last three years, the national morale is at its lowest point. There is less hope in the American people that whatever problems it is they may choose to ask us about to get our reactions to, there's less hope in us that it will ever change, that it will ever get fixed. There's less hope in the people in the government. There's less hope in the schools. There's even less hope in our families as the divorce rate continues to rise. There's no hope. And when there's little hope for change, you can guarantee that there's very little joy. So the theme of what Paul is going to say in Philippians chapter 3 is in the context of joy, of really experiencing and living out a deep and lasting and profound joy. And this joy that he's encouraging them in is in the context of their pain. Don't miss that either. Paul is looking at this church as he's looking at us and he's saying in the midst of your struggles and in the midst of your circumstances, this church was being persecuted. This church was in the midst of extreme poverty. This church now, because of their faith in Christ, had been marginalized from the society around them. Their famous apostle and preacher, the man they love so much, Paul, is writing this letter to them from prison. And Paul's looking at them in the midst of their heartache and their heartbreaks and their difficulties. And he's saying, listen, brothers, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. 
there is deep and lasting and great joy, even in the midst of what you're dealing with. And his word to this church is, is rejoice. And this is the opposite of the standard American spiritual diet. In the standard American spiritual diet, we, we talk about it around here relatively often, is this. Know Jesus, trust Jesus, add Jesus. And in that, you might be comfortable. You might get a bigger wallet, hopefully a smaller body. Things will change. Paul's saying, listen, you've known Jesus. You've trusted Jesus. I've encouraged you in the fact that his very spirit is alive and at well in you fruit of his love for you is pouring out of your lives not only towards me but towards one another and yet because of that you're in pain you're being persecuted you've been cut off from those that are around you and you find yourself in a worse situation now than you ever did before and Paul's saying in the midst of that that would come to you because you love Jesus I want you to rejoice the reality of it is when you come to know Jesus and and the Spirit of God begins to transform our lives, pain doesn't go away. We still live in a fallen and broken world. And in fact, it may actually get worse. But Paul's saying you can know this, and not just know this, you can experience this. There is joy and there is reason to rejoice, not just in spite of what you're going through, but even because of it. Even because of it. And in the hands of a good and very gracious God, even that very pain becomes means for your rejoicing as it begins to transform not only the way that you see and understand who you are and who he is, but it transforms you in the way that you respond to it. He's going to talk about that in just a little while. So he's not saying rejoice, church, because you're in pain. He's not saying rejoice, church, and ignore the fact that things are hard. He's not saying rejoice, church, and pretend that nothing's really bad. He's not asking that we have some fake or plastic joy that exists because we've been able to compartmentalize and shut away the pain and the problems. God never asks that of his people. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying this. I love how the great pastor of Ligon Duncan said it. He said, as real as your problems are and as deep as your heartbreaks are, as justified as your fears are, rejoice in the Lord because you are the recipient of a bigger truth than the truth of your problems. You're the recipient of bigger promises, those that are greater than the sum total of all of your fears and all of your heartaches and all of your heartbreaks. And so in the midst of very present pain and very present circumstances, in the midst of difficult medical diagnoses and difficult marriages, the Apostle Paul looks at the church and he says, listen, rejoice. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. And it's safe for you. So Paul is going to remind them of things that that they've already known, things they've already received, but things that we're so prone to forget, so prone to set aside, so prone to marginalize. And he's going to say, it's no trouble for me to remind you of what I've already told you, because in reminding you of what I've already told told you, and in you growing in a greater treasuring of what I've already told you, the roots in your soul are going to sink down deeper. And any of you know who have planted anything, the deeper the roots go, the more vitality the plant has. And the more vitality the plant has, because the deeper the roots go, the more, thri- the more capable it is of thriving when the heat of the world around it begins to press down on it. So Paul says, it's no trouble to me to remind you. 
It's no trouble of me to cultivate in your soul deeper and more lasting roots because there's heat that's pressing in on you. There's heat that's surrounding you. There's trouble that's coming to you. In fact, the safest thing that I can do for you is remind you of what I've already told you. The safest thing I can do for you is remind you of what really lays the roots deep, of what really cultivates the soul, of what really produces health and vitality and the capacity to thrive. It's no trouble for me. It's no trouble for me at all, and it's safe for you. And so here's what he's going to do. Paul is going to explain and, and, and describe some difficulties that were coming on this church in particular, some things that were coming to rob this church of its joy, some things that were seeking to yank their faith up by the root. He's going to warn us of that which seeks to rob us of our joy, and then he's going to give us some truths. He's going to give us three very, very deep, lasting, and strong truths that when we grasp them, when we treasure them, they can be our weapons in our fight for our joy. And he's going to do it in some pretty colorful ways. So verse 2, hold on, it's going to get really interesting here. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So what's happening is there are some religious people who have come into this church and who have begun to encourage this church that's new in their faith that though they may have accepted Jesus and that was great, now there are things that they needed to do to continue for God to be happy with them. Jesus, that's fine. You've got him. He's in your life. He's in your heart. That's fantastic. If you really want God to continue to be happy with you and if you really want to stand before God righteous and justified one day, here are some things you've got to do. And we've talked about this throughout the book of Acts, so many of you are familiar with this. And Paul says, look out for them. For we're the circumcision, and he's talking about the circumcision of the heart, a tender disposition towards God, what God had promised in the Old Testament to do to our hearts in transforming them and making them new. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Or he's talking about flesh there, he's talking about our own efforts or our own work or our own attempts to be a good person. And what Paul's essentially doing here is saying, I'm going to fight for your joy. I'm going to help you fight for your joy. I want to strengthen you in the fight for your joy. And the first thing you've got to do is look out for these people who want to rob you of your joy by telling you that there's more that you need to do to make God happy with you. The first thing that Paul is doing is he's going to make a comparison and a contrast against a Christian, essentially, and a religious person, and between Christianity, ultimately, and, and religion. And so you've got to look out for this attempt to encourage you to do stuff and then to simply trust in it. There's a difference between Christianity and religion. Paul's saying Christians understand that in essence, at heart, in depth, they are sinners. And that before God, they deserve none of his grace and and none of his mercy. And that they were saved solely by the person and work of Jesus. And that they have a new life and can worship by the power of God's spirit. They have a new life and a new power and a new spirit and can worship God and what he's done. They understand that. Religious people simply want to say, do stuff, and then trust in it. And for these guys, the essential issue was circumcision. Trust Jesus, great. Get circumcised, then you can be a part of the church. And when you're a part of the church, then you can get the blessings of God. Do this, trust in it, then God will be happy with you. We don't talk about circumcision much in our day and age, but we have a lot of things that we talk about. Standard American evangelical diet. Jesus is great. He was a good person. Taught a lot of good things. Know Jesus. You can even say his name now on television. But if you really want God to be happy with you, then you've got to speak in tongues. You've got to listen to this music. You've got to dress in these particular clothes. You've got to homeschool your kids this way. You've got to not homeschool your kids this way. If you really love Jesus, you send them to that school so they can be lights to a lost world. 
If you really love Jesus, then you'll do this. Then you'll do that. If you don't do these things, how can you know that God really loves you? How can you really know that your heart's been changed if you don't do those things? And in all of it, in all of that, in all of this religion, do these things and trust in these things, in all of it, Jesus is never enough. That's the essential problem with religion. Jesus might be named, he might be acknowledged, he might be even sung about, but he's never actually enough. He's not sufficient. And religious people and religion lives as though the tomb isn't empty. As though the resurrection that assured us of all the promises of God, that they're yes and amen in Christ, never actually happened. Religion lives as if Jesus was never raised from the dead. And that he's still wrapped up somewhere in a cave in Israel that we haven't been able to find. And that we need to do something to add to his sacrifice on our behalf. That's ultimately the problem. That's ultimately the problem, which is one reason why the resurrection matters so much. And we talked about that last week. But Paul says that religious people essentially believe that Jesus might help us. But ultimately, we need to do things to help him out. And this gets under Paul's skin like few other things. And he thinks about these people, these religious people who have come into the church and who have taken this new church with their faith and their hope and their trust in the sufficiency of Jesus and have begun to drag them away from that and try to add burdens onto their souls and and try to convince them that they need to do things to prove themselves to God. And this gets under Paul's skin like nothing else. And he looks at them and he says, Watch out for these dogs. Watch out for these dogs. And he's not talking about, like, your, your pet. He's not talking about the domesticated Labrador or golden retriever. In this day and age, as in some places still in the world today, there were packs of wild dogs that would run through town. They would run the streets. They would eat flesh. They would use the bathroom wherever they wanted. They would breed in the middle of the street. They would chase people. They would attack people. They would cause absolute nuisance such to the degree that people were afraid of these packs of wild dogs that would run through the street. They actually ruled the area. And Paul's saying, this is what religious people are like. And look out for them. The mutilators of the flesh. Be on guard for them. Essentially because they are going to lead you into something and try to convince you of something that one isn't true and it two will rob you of your joy. Watch out for them because if you believe this, If you believe this, it will rob you of your joy. But I want you to rejoice. I want you to rejoice. The religion cannot lead you into joy, Paul says. And he says, more than anybody else, I should know. Look at verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, so I, I have reason to be confident in what I've done. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in his flesh, listen, I have more. And Paul's about to drop his spiritual resume. This is what Paul's about to do. He's about to drop his resume. Now, a lot of you have resumes out and about right now, so you're familiar with what resumes are, right? Resumes are are, are lists of accomplishments and credentials that you have attained, that you've worked hard to attain, education that you've attained and work that you've done and awards that you've won, and you put this stuff together to give to people so that it can get you into something that currently you're on the outside of, right? Like there's a job and a company over here that you want to get into, and so you've compiled this resume of your, of your achievements and your awards and your honors and your recognition so that this resume might be a tool to get you in over here, right? That's essentially what a resume does, and, and we do them in every area of our life. We, we do them in relationships, right? I mean, that first four, six months when you're dating somebody, I mean, you're just compiling and arranging your, your best relational resume, your best behaviors, your best clothes, your kindest manners, all those things that can get you somewhere where right now you're on the outside of. We do it with people, not even romantically. We do it with relationships with people, with groups of people. 
We figure out what we can compile about ourselves that they would acknowledge, that would get us in to whatever it is we're on the outside of. That's, that's what a resume does. And Paul's about to drop his spiritual resume. It says in verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He was just saying that he was, he was a Jew. He was one of the, God's chosen people. He was a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. And he's saying that because Benjamin was one of the two tribes in the people of Israel that was racially pure. They did not, um, they remained faithful when the tribes of Israel were split in the history of the church in the Old Testament. Um, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he was saying that he was even faithful to his subculture. That when all the world around him was becoming more Greek, as the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire was accomplishing or taking ground and, and gathering people, that even he, in the midst of that, didn't go Greek. He didn't become Greek. He didn't take on the Greek culture. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, faithful to his subculture. And as to the law, as to the, the rules of the law, he was a Pharisee. He was unbelievably serious about the holiness of God and the response of his life to the holiness of God. So much so, these guys memorized the first five, five books of, of the Old Testament or the Torah. And over the history of the church, by the time Paul would have been a Pharisee, they would have added some 16, I mean, 613 new laws to the laws of the Old Testament that they had to abide by. I mean, Paul was serious about the holiness of God and serious about the holiness of God being reflected in his life. He took sin and holiness very, very, very seriously. And he says, even as to this law, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So of all those 613 laws we added and the ones that were in the Bible, in my conscience before God, blameless. Kept them, held them. As to zeal, he says in verse 6, his passion for this. I was a persecutor of the church. He was so zealous about God's holiness, about his holiness in relation to God, that anything that stood contrary to that, he was a persecutor of, such that we know as we've been studying the book of Acts, he sought to end, to annihilate the beginnings of this new church. He loved God and God's holiness, and he hated anything that stood against it. That's fairly impressive. What Paul is saying is this, what I had built up, what I had compiled, the spiritual resume that I had been able to acquire and accomplish. This is what I intended to present to God on the day that I stood before him. The day that every man and every woman will stand before God in judgment. Paul said he would stand there with utter confidence. Everybody else sweating bullets. Paul's just in line, waiting for his turn because he's got this resume and he had intended to slide this resume right in front of God and say, here, when you ask me why I should spend eternity with you, here you go. Here's my resume. And he expected what he had done and what he had accomplished and all of his zeal and all of his effort to please God to such a degree that God would look over his sins, look over his disregard, look over his misplaced worship and allow Paul to enter into eternity in his presence. And every single one of us does this. Every single one of us tries to compile our best spiritual resume we try to establish some resume and some history of our best efforts to, to please God, to honor God, to be moral, to be good, to do whatever it is we've been instructed to do or we think we should do to keep God off our backs or ultimately so that when we face him in eternity, we can show him our resume and, and he'll be pleased with it. And this, Paul is saying, is what the religious people want you to think you need. They've come in and they said, you, great, you've got Jesus. Now get about padding that thing. I mean, just, just having Jesus on there, that's, that's an empty resume. I mean, you know you want your resume to be long. You don't want some guy to look at your resume and be like, you know, 
one pay, half a page. You know, there's thousands of people competing for that job. You've got to get that thing stacked. Religious people are saying, you've just got one thing on your resume. You need to get about building this thing. You need to get about doing the things you need to do for God to accept you. This is what they're trying to convince the church they need to do. And Paul said, this is exactly what I thought I needed. It's exactly what I thought I needed. And I had given myself over to it. Better than all of you. Better than anyone. But, everything turns on this word in the Bible. But, whatever gain I had. So listen, he's not, he's not saying there was no gain in it. I mean, he's not saying that all that effort was for, was for pain and suffering. There was some gain in it. I mean, he gained a reputation. I mean, he gained some kind of standing. I mean, some things that he was trying to pursue and achieve, he actually achieved. And he said, but whatever gain I had, whatever respect I had garnered, whatever I thought I needed, and whatever I thought I was after, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ Jesus. The sake of Christ, being the glory of Christ. Before it was everything was about Paul, about his name, about his glory, about his resume, what he had done, how he could prove himself worthy, how he could prove himself lovable. He said, no, I counted it all loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says two unbelievably things, big things there. I count it all loss. The entire resume, the pages that have been compiled about my spiritual worth, I count it all loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Not just what Jesus can do for me. Not just all that comes because of who Jesus is for the surpassing worth of knowing him. It just knowing him for the worth and the honor of knowing him relationally. Now, this is a very intimate word here that we translate no. And Paul is saying this, the worth of knowing Jesus surpasses everything else that I have put my hand to, that I have tried to achieve, that I have tried to re- reward myself with. Every accomplishment that I have gone after, I count as loss for simply having the opportunity of knowing him and the surpassing worth of what that means in my life. He said all of it was loss. He used a beautiful word there when he was talking about loss. See, back in the day when, when, when ships would have to sail and, and merchants and trade went out on the sea, there were these ships, that were grain ships, you know, jewelry ships, you know, ships for everything. And, and when a ship would be out on sea and a big storm would come, and, and like you think about Jonah and the story of Jonah and the, and the sea binding to capsize the boat, when the, when the ship was set sail on the sea and a storm would come and it was in danger, what it would do is it would take the cargo that it was transporting, all the, the goods that it was going to make its money on, and they would toss it overboard. Because they would, as they would toss it overboard and the ship would get lighter, it would ride higher on the waves. And so as the waves would grow and the storm would grow, the boat would begin to sink under the weight. And so to stay on top of the waves, they would have to look at their cargo and toss it off. And the tossing off of that cargo is what they considered in marine terms a loss. And that's the word that Paul uses here. Paul is saying all those things that I had achieved, all those things that I thought I had needed, all those things that I was going to wave in front of God's face so that he could love me and accept me, now because of the worth of just knowing Jesus, I counted all loss. In fact, actually keeping those things, trying to hold on to those things, would have brought a certain death. It would have brought death. If the ships held on to the cargo in the midst of the storm, they would have sank under the weight of the waves. They couldn't have risen above it. They couldn't have gotten high enough to ride over the water to the storm to go away. Paul says, this is what your spiritual resume is doing to you. 
Paul said, I counted it all loss. All loss. In fact, it was certain death if I had held on to it. Why? Oh, it was the sake of just knowing, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. For his sake, talking about Jesus, Paul says, for his glory, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Gain Christ. Know Christ. In relationship with Christ, know him. Gain him. And, Paul says, and be found in him. Not having a righteousness or a right standing with God of my own that comes from the law, his religious, religious resume, his keeping of the rules. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What Paul's saying is, is the surpassing worth of just knowing Christ, the weight of all that I have done in, in comparison to that simply s- compelled me to cast everything aside just to know him. Everything else is going to kill me. But it wasn't just that I got to know him. Knowing him means I was being found in him. And so the day that I now stand before God, when God is the day, the day of judgment, and, and God were to look at me and say, why, Paul? In the midst of all that you've done, I mean, you've killed my followers. You, you persecuted the church. Why in the world? Why in the world should I allow you to spend eternity in my presence? What Paul's saying, he said, when that day comes, I... I have no intentions now of standing before God and trying to present my resume to him. There's no confidence, there's no boldness, there's no smugness in me at all anymore. In fact, I absolutely tore that resume up. I I shredded that resume. I have no intention to talk about myself anymore when I stand before God on that day. Now, instead of talking about myself and making much of my name for my sake, that God might have the privilege of letting me into eternity with him because of what I've done and the reputation that I've gained. Paul said when he looks at me and asks me that question, I'll say this. There's no reason, no reason in and of myself you should allow me into heaven to spend eternity with you. My resume is this. Jesus. His life lived in my place. His death on the cross in my place. Your acceptance of his sacrifice in my place for my sins by you raising him from the dead. His Holy Spirit sent to me to empower me, to make me new. There is no reason in and of myself for you to allow me to spend eternity in your presence. My resume now simply just says, Jesus. He lived the perfect life. I didn't. He died on the cross to pay the price for my sins. I don't have to do that now. Why should you let me in? Jesus. He rose. He gave me new life. His tomb is empty. He's taken away my sins. He gives me now his righteousness. And when you look at me, what you see is your son. You don't see me. In fact, in fact, all of that padding, all of that building of that spiritual resume, all that effort to compile and accomplish all of those things, all that work to please God, Paul says, it's actually rubbish. Actually rubbish. And I'm really glad that Paul wrote that. I'm really glad that it's in the Bible because you can't get mad at me for talking about it. That, that's actually a really graphic word. It's, a, it's actually a really graphic word. It's not a technical word for human feces. It's a street word for human feces. In fact, one 17th century Bible translation for a rural community in England actually used a word that started with an S and ended with a T. Had a consonant and a vowel in between them. 
That's what that word means. And Paul says, when you stand before God and God looks at your efforts and he looks at your resume, this is what it looks like to him. Rubbish. All of your efforts to make yourself right before God and to earn his love and to earn his favor in light of what he's done in his son Jesus, to him, looks like rubbish. Think about that next time you go to the bathroom. The Bible's giving you something to meditate on. That's what your religion looks like to God. The Bible uses that word because it wants you to understand the, the heinousness of it. In light of who God is and what he has done through his son, Jesus, your spiritual resume and your effort at padding that resume, that's what it looks like to God. And Paul said, before I knew Christ, I went after this with zeal that nobody else can compare to, but for the surpassing worth of knowing him and being found in him having a righteousness or a right standing that comes from God, not, a part, not, a, not because of my resume, not because of my work, but because of Jesus and his life and his death and God's acceptance of that and his resurrection. Oh, knowing him and being found in him and having a righteousness that doesn't come from the law but from faith in him, that, that, friends, in the midst of whatever you're going through, is cause for joy. Paul says being justified before God your sins being dealt with by God, the righteousness you need to stand before God being dealt with by God in his son, in your place, for you. It doesn't matter what you're going through to some degree at this point. Knowing him and the surpassing worth of knowing him and being found in him is cause for joy. Paul says you have, you have been justified by God through his son, Jesus. In verse 10 he says, that I might know him. Again, that same word of intimacy, back to this knowing of Jesus and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So one source of joy in the midst of such difficulty is knowing that we have been declared righteous, that we have right standing before God, that we are justified in God's eyes through faith in his son Jesus, that our sin went to Jesus and his righteousness has been applied to us and theologians call that justification. And now what Paul's talking about as a second reason to have joy in the midst of whatever we're going through is that it doesn't just stop there. It's not just that we're made right now in this life. There's change. There's transforming power. We are not as we once were. We're being transformed. And this is what he's talking about, becoming like Jesus, becoming transformed into his image. And reading this in verse 10, it's a often confusing passage, but it reminded me of something Paul told the church in Rome in, in Romans chapter 6. He said this. You don't have to turn there. He says, Do you not all know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were, were baptized into his death? So we were buried, therefore, with him by a baptism in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, the resurrection, just as he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. New life. Not just justified and righteous before God because of our faith in Jesus, as glorious as that is, but there's new life right here, right now. We can walk in newness of life because of the power of the resurrection. The theologians call this sanctification. This is the process whereby God not only gives us a new heart, which is called regeneration. I'm giving you some words you can go home and look up and fight for joy with. But our heart is regenerated by his Holy Spirit. And now because of his work in our hearts and the righteousness of Christ being applied to our lives and the power of the Holy Spirit coming into our heart, we can have new lives right here, right now. 
It starts with God connecting us to him through the work of his son. But then our thinking and our desires and our passions, our our spiritual taste buds begin to change. And as we meditate on the scriptures and as we read the scriptures and as the Holy Spirit begins to bring the the understanding of the scriptures to our heart and to our minds, our, our minds even begin to change. And our wants begin to change. Our actions begin to change. Our attitudes begin to change. Our motivations begin to change. We begin to change. And this is what theologians call sanctification. Our hearts transformed. We're we're new. We're not just shiny versions of our old self. We weren't just cleaned up. The Bible says that we have been made absolutely new creations. And this new heart produces new desires and new wants that are in line with the character of Christ. And as we have a new desire and a new heart and a new want, we have his spirit, which is a a new power. And the Holy Spirit now in us is enabling us to say yes to the things that honor and glorify Christ and no to the things that do not honor and glorify Christ. And this power comes from God himself. And we have a new community. We have a church. We have the people of God that God has given us to help us in this process of being conformed into his image. We have the capacity to love one another in such a way that we can communicate the gospel to one another and encourage one another in this fight for joy to help one another see where we have exchanged these things for something else. So Paul said, it's no trouble to remind you of these things. It's the safest thing I can do for you. This is what we do with one another. It's the safest thing that we can do with one another. Remind each other of the truths of the gospel the things that we should hold to and cling to and treasure, the things that take the roots in our soul deeper and deeper. We have this now in a new community. We're not left to ourselves. We're not left by ourselves to figure it all out. God's given us each other. He's given us his people. And the thing in verse 10 that's most particular here in this process is he gives us a new perspective. And we get a new perspective on the life that we're living right here and right now. I mean, your struggle and your, your pain and your difficulty. The things that this church was going through and this thing, the things that this church were facing. Because of the work of God in our hearts, the power of his Holy Spirit at work in us, the transforming power of that on our hearts, this new identity, this new way of seeing things, we get a new perspective on the struggles and the difficulties that we're actually facing. We actually see that the difficulty that we're facing in God's hands is actually used to make us more like his son. The difficulties that we're facing, we now approach with different perspectives and different motivations and different attitudes, and that produces a different response to them. And we see that he's actually using these things to transform us and to make us more like his son. And so instead of hating them, and, and there's an aspect to which difficulty and struggle and loss and pain, we hate because it's not the way things were supposed to be. I mean, it's a reminder of the presence of sin. And the longing, even in this world, for the coming of Christ and the making of all things new. There's, there's a reality to it. We see it and it reminds us of our need for the gospel and of our need for Christ. But on the other hand, we can see it. And with new hearts and new desires and with a new power at work in us, we can begin to pray. We begin to ask God, please, don't waste this thing. I'm without a job. I'm without a job for a while. Lots of fears, lots of struggles, lots of uncertainties. God, as much as I want that job and I'm praying that you open the doors that need to be open for me to get it, God, don't waste this thing. Don't let me be the same man or the same woman on the backside of this thing that I was on the front. Use this struggle and this difficulty to transform me, to make me more like your son. Don't waste it. Don't waste that diagnosis. Don't waste the difficulties with your kids right now. Don't waste the way that God is using them to show you your need for him to show you where you're weak, 
to show you where he's great and to continue to transform you into the image of his son. This is what the process of sanctification is is all about. And Paul is saying he wants the church to know the saving power of the resurrection and the transforming power of the resurrection. That we're made right by faith in Jesus because of his sacrifice in our place. And it's not just that one-time thing. It's an ongoing process of transformation into his image and into his likeness. And then in verse 11, if that all wasn't good enough, Paul says, all of this, that by any means necessary, any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is what Paul, or theologians, call glorification. That we're justified because of the work of Christ. We're in the process of being sanctified because of the work of Christ and the power of the resurrection. But one day, one day it will all be gone. One day God will return. And sin will be no more. Pain will be no more. One day for those who have given themselves and received the good news of the gospel and have placed their faith in the work and the person of Jesus Christ, their bodies will no longer even be broken. They will have a new body. And God will create a new heavens and a new earth. Things will be the way that they were meant to be for all of eternity. And Paul is saying this ultimately is our hope. The process on earth right now is never going to be completed. You're never actually going to be perfect. You're never actually going to represent the perfect image of Christ. But one day, one day, God is going to make all things right. And when Jesus returns, and we rise for all of eternity, we are going to be transformed. We will be made like him. The earth will be made the way that it was supposed to be. Paul is saying the resurrection the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus three days after he sacrificed himself in our place for our sins on that cross matters because it is the source and the ground and the foundation for all of the joy that we are to have in the midst of all that we suffer in a fallen and broken world. The resurrection guarantees, guarantees your justification before God it guarantees your ongoing sanctification in the image of his son. And it guarantees that one day, like Jesus, you will be raised from the dead and your body will be transformed and this world will be transformed and you will stand before God and worship God and be satisfied by God in all of eternity in a new heavens and a new earth. That is what the resurrection guarantees. And Paul is saying that's why it matters. It's for your joy. And you can have joy right now in the midst of everything because of who God is and what he has done through his son, Jesus. So finally, you're going to count on me finally, I'm going to say? That's my first. Finally, let me just give you some indicators as we wrap up here. Paul's been warning them of religion and warning them of religious people, dogs, mutilators, They will rob your joy and they will kill it. Let me give you some indicators here, some fruit to look for. Assessing where your heart is in relation to the gospel and let's say in relation to just contemporary American religion. Here's, Here's the first one to look out for. How about humility? The first thing that this gospel produces in our life, this treasuring of justification and the right standing we have before God because of Jesus and the process of change and the hope of eternity, it produces humility. Christians can know that they're not good people. 
they can know that deep down, they're not good people. But that Jesus is a most gracious and good God. Christians can say with absolute certainty, with complete humility, that I have not lived an acceptable life in God's sight. I have not lived an acceptable life in God's eyes, but Jesus lived an acceptable life in my place. He lived a perfect life in my place before God's eyes that I don't deserve in and of myself. I do not deserve God's love, but Jesus gives it to me as a gift. Jesus gives it to me through grace that I don't save myself, that Jesus alone is my Savior. And knowing that and treasuring that and clinging to that begins to produce joy, a humble, deep joy in your heart and in your soul because the pressure to perform, the pressure to build the resume, the pressure to pad it in such a way that it can please this infinite and holy God, it's gone. The pressure's gone. I don't have to do it. I don't have to sit before God one day and present my resume and hope that he accepts it. Jesus has done all that I needed to do in my place. Jesus pleases God in my place. And now he saves me. And he gives me his Holy Spirit to empower me to live a life that pleases God. I get to live a life that pleases God because of Jesus, empowered by his Spirit through what he's done. I get to do that. And he empowers me to do that. And as we grab this and treasure this, it begins to produce a humility, a humility that gives us a life of great joy. The pressure's off. Another indicator, another indicator of your heart, of of where you are, about repentance, about repentance. Religious people hate to repent. Religious people don't repent. I'll just tell you that. Religious people cannot stand repentance. Do you know why? When you, when you point out the sin of another person, a religious person, or they have to recognize their own sin, what you're doing is you're taking away from them their goodness. Religious people believe that they're good and that it's their goodness that's going to earn them the love and the favor of God. And when they have to deal with their sin, you're saying that they're not good. And so they won't say they're sorry. They won't repent. You're taking away their resume. You're saying that that thing they put on the resume is not really true. They've, they've falsified it. And this is the thing they hold on to and they find security in. And you're saying that they have to say they're wrong. And religious people just won't say they're wrong because they believe that they're good. But the gospel, understanding that we're justified before God because of Christ, understanding that his spirit is living in us, transforming us and empowering us to live an entirely new life and that one day, by his grace, we will stand before him made absolutely whole and perfect because of his grace. It allows us to actually be humble. It allows us to actually repent. It allows us to actually say, you know what? I sinned. You know what right there? That, that was on me. I, I did that. I, I sinned. You know what? I was wrong. I'm sorry. You know what? Can you please forgive me? I, I need to ask you for my forgiveness. My, my motives were wrong. My hopes were wrong. My wants were wrong. My actions in this process, they were, they were wrong. Everything behind that was wrong. I need to ask you to forgive me because I was wrong and I've sinned. 
I'm going to ask for your forgiveness and I'm going to ask for God's forgiveness too because ultimately I sin not only against you but I've sinned against him. And you know what? I'm glad that God forgives me. I'm glad that he forgives me and I'm going to ask that you forgive me too. So religious people can't do that. They can't own their mistakes. They can't own their sin. They can't repent fully and completely before God because in doing that, it's taking away their goodness. And their goodness is the thing that they're clinging to. So look at your heart. Think about your heart. Think about how much you're asking Jesus to change you. Think about where your righteousness is found in your heart. Humble repentance. Humble repentance produces deep and lasting joy. No pressure to perform. No fear to perform. No fear of the response of other people because the one that ultimately matters has already been declared. No fear. Joy. Freedom. No guilt and pressure laying on your heart and laying on your soul. This is what comes from a treasuring of being justified and being sanctified and one day being glorified. And we'll finally, just to be like Paul, we'll end it with this one. How about this? How about assurance? How about assurance? I mean, one day, every single one of us will die and stand before God. One day, it's, it's going to happen. I don't know when that day is. I don't plan on ever preaching about when that day is going to happen. I think there's a billboard on 95 that's got some date up there. I don't know. They might be right, they might be wrong. I have no clue. That's really of no concern of mine. But one day, every single one of us will stand before God. And on that day, will we be a friend or will we be an enemy? And here's the thing. Religion, it can only lead you to one answer. I don't know. I'm not really sure. I mean, religion can only lead you to the answer of I'm not really sure. Because how can you know if you've actually done enough to make him happy? I mean, how can you know if you've actually done all the right things, if you haven't missed one? How can you know that the things you chose to do were the things he wanted you to do? How can you actually know that you've succeeded, that you've been good enough, that you've tried hard enough? Religion can ultimately only produce anxiety and no assurance. But the gospel, the treasuring of being justified, the power of the Holy Spirit living in you to transform you into the image of his son, being sanctified, it provides certainty. Deep and lasting certainty because your answer has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus. In fact, John wrote this saying about his writings. I write these things so that you may know, so that you can have certainty that he who has the Son, who has Jesus, has life. Certainty. No arrogance. Comforting certainty regarding your standing before God if you belong to him through faith in his Son, Jesus. Paul is fighting for their joy. He's fighting for their humility. He's fighting for their honesty. He's fighting for their assurance. He's fighting for their joy. Religion will only lead you in a gutter of despair. It will only lead you in despair or at worst lead you to pride. You either feel like you won't ever be able to accomplish everything or if you you think you did, you think you don't need anything else. It will rob you of everything that you need for life and godliness and joy in this life now. But Paul is saying there is good news to rejoice in. Rejoice. Have joy. Right now, no matter what you're dealing with, have joy. Rejoice 
in the Lord. Jesus enables us to be humble, to be honest, to be certain, and to live with joy. Because he has loved us well. Because he has loved us well. Not because we've done anything good enough to actually earn it. He hasn't given up. He hasn't forsaken us. He hasn't rejected us. He has loved us. In fact, he said this, I came. Here's what Jesus said about his own ministry. I came so that your joy would be complete. Your joy. This is what we're after. This is what we're going to fight for. This is what Paul was fighting for. We are after the fight for joy, for the enjoyment of God and the enjoyment of his grace. And by God's grace, this is what we'll be after together. Our joy. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the confidence that we can have in your word as it reveals your character to us, your son to us. Thank you that your word draws us to a humility and to a faith in who you are and what you've done. And I ask, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that you would bring repentance into our hearts where there needs to be repentance, or that you would compel each and every one of us to take that resume that we're so bent on compiling, and we're so desperate to continue to pad so that we can slide it before you one day and, and hope that you'll love us and hope that you'll take us, that you would just compel us through your grace and by your Spirit to tear that thing up and to have confidence to have confidence that all we need and what we need is faith in your son Jesus. I ask that this faith, this confidence in who he is and what he has done and the surpassing worth of simply knowing him would produce in us as a church and as people a great joy. A great joy in the midst of what we're facing so much so that the people around us will look at us and actually ask us to give a reason for the hope and the joy that they see in us. And our answer would be Jesus. It would simply be Jesus. We ask this, that even in our lives, you would be made much of. And in the places where you've sent us, that you would be made much of. We ask this for your sake, Jesus. Amen. Amen.